1: ba ba
2: Hello listeners, how are you? I hope everything is tickety-boo with you, and that you're ready to plunge once more into the world of Underwood and Flinch. This podcast, of course, would not be here, were it not, for the generous patronage of my supporters at Patreon.com. If you'd like to join them, just whiz over to Patreon.com forward slash Mike Bennett, and there you will find us, along with over 70 episodes of Underwood and Flinch, 11 of which, counting this one, you have now listened to, but that still leaves about 60 that you haven't. So, think on, and avail of it while it lasts, because, like all things, one day it won't be there anymore, and this seriously affordable option for listening to Underwood and Flinch Underground will be gone forever. Oh yes. But anyway, enough of that. Let's steam on with the story, shall we? I'll hand you over to me in 2016 for the original Patreon catch-up for this episode quick recap on some things that are pertinent to this episode, because in this episode, we once again meet our police friends, Detective Inspector Claire Redmond and Detective Sergeant Lawrence Beck. Remember, they're investigating the case of the body in the skip, the one with the knife wounds to the neck. Claire told Larry that she's seen something like that before in pictures she found in her late father's secret hidden stash of notebooks and items from his cases in the Occult Crimes Unit. But, of course, there never was any Occult Crimes Unit. He told her so. It was just a story he was writing. But then, one night when he was taken away to a mental hospital by his partner, Charlie Coleridge, and his men... Her father seemed to have a change of mind. It was all real, he told her. There is no book. They're coming, Claire. They're coming. And who knows? Maybe they are. This is chapter eleven of Underwood and Flinch, Season 3, Underground. Written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett. Chapter 11 This podcast is intended for an adult audience. Listener discretion is advised. At about the same time that Damo was having his first encounter with the London Underground Ticket Inspector, Detectives Redmond and Beck were arriving at St Joseph's Church where the previous night Damo had claimed his last victim. The church was now cordoned off as a police crime scene. Redmond and Beck showed their IDs and were waved through by a uniformed officer. They were then directed to a screened-off area where they could put on forensic coveralls before entering the church. Once suited up, they went up the short flight of stone steps to the church door, where crime scene officers were preparing to dust for prints. They entered and skirted another group of CSOs working around the font. Redmond recognised one of them and said, Hello Dan, having a wash? The CSO looked up and smiled on seeing her. Ah, all right, Inspector. No, but uh, it looks like someone else has. Really? What have you got? Blood in the font water. Splash pattern around the font and on the floor indicates the killer might have washed up before he left the scene. Well, that was thoughtful of him, at least. A series of camera flashes from the altar drew her attention to where the largest group of CSOs were gathered. Body up there, is it? Yeah, Christ, we got a right one here. Right out of the old Hammer House of Horror it is. Looks like a proper vampire killing, even down to the holes in the neck. Do what? said Beck. We'll Go and see for yourself. Dan pointed out a figure to the right of the altar. Mo Al-Habab's the doc. Redmond and Beck walked up to the altar. The photographer was still taking pictures while the divisional surgeon, Mo Al-Habab, and his assistants were comparing notes. Dr. Van Helsing, I presume? Redmond called to Al-Habab. Al-Habab looked up and raised an eyebrow. "'Ah, Redmond and Beck, the dynamic duo. "'You've obviously heard about her victim's condition.' He waved them forward. "'Come on up. "'Seeing is believing. "'Round here to my side, please.' They did as he asked, and he stepped aside to reveal the body of the priest. "'Now, it's important not to let your imaginations run away with you, "'but it certainly appears that the victim died as a result of two puncture wounds to the jugular vein.' He pointed to the wounds, which were clearly visible. Redmond looked around the body. The red carpet was stained a deeper red near the wound, but the spread of the stain was small, and there were no signs of blood splatter anywhere. So, where's the blood? Al-Hibab shrugged. Good question. The amount of blood we've detected in the carpet falls considerably short of what the victim has lost. It's possible that the blood has drained through the flooring beneath the carpet— The team are going to explore the possibility once the body has been removed, but even if they find a quantity down there, I still would have expected a greater concentration here, in the immediate vicinity of the body. Two holes like those in the jugular. Blood would have come out fast, faster than it could seep down through the floorboards. So what, someone's removed it? Asked Beck. As opposed to drank it? Al-Hibab's eyebrows arched. That's what you were going to say, wasn't it? Of course not said Beck. "Than be daft, Mo. But I'll bet it's what you were thinking. You can't help but think it when you see those marks on the neck. It looks like Dracula's been feeding on him, which, I dare say, is the impression the killer wants to create. So what do you think we're dealing with? Asked Redmond. A vampire fetishist? Someone who's watched a bit too much Buffy and fancies himself as one of the undead? What happens, Guff? Said Beck. You do get people who claim to be vampires. They reckon they can't go out in the sun and say they have to drink human blood or else they'll get sick. Do they? asked Redmond. Where did you learn this? Well, I saw something about it on YouTube once. You know, one of those TV shows about strange and unexplained phenomena. There was this young couple in America. White as a couple of pints of milk they were. And the fella, he was saying how they only went out after dark and how they'd bleed themselves a little bit every night and drink it or else they'd get ill. And what was the conclusion? Beck shrugged. Well, it wasn't one. Other than they were strange phenomena. By strange phenomena, I think we mean mentally ill, said Al-Hibab. Sure, no doubt, said Beck. But could a considerably more mentally ill individual have sat here and literally drunk this guy's blood straight out of his neck? al Hebab shook his head. No. Even if you were looking at someone who had got a taste for blood from snacking on themselves, such an acceleration from that to this. No, they simply couldn't have stomached it. There'd be blood everywhere, and probably a pool of vomit. So what do you think the killer did here? asked Redmond. Well, it was a pretty clean extraction, said Al-Habab. My guess is he subdued the victim and used some kind of large twin cannula to drain the blood into a container, or containers, which he then took away with him when he left the scene. Like a takeaway, said Beck, assuming he was actually going to drink it. But maybe he wants it for something else. Like what? asked Redmond. Maybe a black magic ritual, something like that? Makes a lot more sense than drinking it, doesn't it? It's certainly saner, said Alibab if murdering people for the purposes of black magic can be called sane. Okay, said Redmond. If we assume black magic is the motive, then why do it here? And why go to all the bother of this extremely fussy method of murder? Why not just kidnap the guy and kill him somewhere private as part of the actual ritual? Isn't that the norm with human sacrifice? It'd certainly be a damn size easier. You'd collect all of the blood, and you'd have plenty of time to dispose of the body afterwards. Well, I'm no expert on black magic, Gov, said Beck. But maybe not all cults like their eggs done the same way, you know what I mean? Maybe the person, or persons, who did this, like the symbolism of it all. I mean, killing a man of God in the house of God, (laughs) that has got to be some pretty powerful juju, hasn't it? But that still doesn't explain the method of murder, said Redmond. This twin cannula device, I can't imagine something like that actually exists, does it, Mo?' Al-Hibab shook his head. "'No, and these puncture wounds, they are too large for medical cannula. He must have created some device himself. But I cannot imagine what.' "'So again, why? Why not just cut the victim's wrist over a bowl or something? The wine chalice would surely be a nice symbolic gesture.' Redmond knelt down beside the body. "'Have you tested around the wounds for saliva?' "'Saliva? Not as yet,' said Al-Hibab. "'Obviously we'll be examining the wounds more closely, but... "'You're not suggesting that this was an actual bite, are you?' "'Are you saying it couldn't be?' "'No, of course not. But what animal has a bite like this? "'Certainly no urban animal in London.' Redmond held up a hand and asked Al-Hibab for his pen." He passed it to her, and she held it lengthways close to the twin wounds. Using her finger and thumb, she marked the distance between the punctures on the pen. Then she stood up, opened her mouth, and held the pen across her teeth. The width she had measured on the pen approximately matched her own bite between the canine teeth. Pretty precise distance between the holes, isn't it? "'Don't tell me it was you, Gov,' said Beck, smiling." Here, open up, said Redmond, raising the pen to Beck's mouth. Beck spread his lips and bared his teeth. Redmond held the pen against them. Again, the distance was approximately correct. See, the distance between the holes is the same as the average human bite. al habab was looking deeply anxious. He shrugged. Which only proves that's the impression the killer wanted to create. Yes, said Redmond. But to me it suggests something else, something that can't be confirmed till you examine the wounds more closely. But I think when you do, you'll find that these wounds were made by teeth, and there will be saliva around the wound. With a little laugh, Al-Habab said, <laughs> "Human or bat?" He looked at Beck for someone to share the joke with, but found him unsmiling. That remains to be seen," said Redmond. She offered Al-Habab his pen back he took it no longer amused all right said beck but what about the other one this morning gov you reckon that was also a what did you call it an exsanguination Do you reckon these murders could be connected redmond considered the body well it doesn't look like the same handiwork to me at all with exception of the blood extraction they're very different m.o's what's the time of death mo "'My guess is it happened last night between nine and twelve,' said Al-Hibab. "'We'll know for sure once we've done some tests, but what's this about the other body? "'I heard about it earlier. Found in a skip, is that right?' Redmond nodded. "'Yes. Knife wounds to the neck and torso. Same side of the neck as this one, and exactly the same place.' "'And drained of blood?' "'Too soon to say for sure, but it looks that way. Bob Jeffries is the man to talk to. He's taking care of the body.' ''And you don't think there's a connection?'' asked Al-Hibab. ''A connection? Very possibly. But the same killer? No, I don't.'' She turned to Beck. ''Do you, Larry?'' Beck shook his head thoughtfully. ''Nah, I agree with you, Mom. You suggested earlier with that one in the skip that the killer was trying to hide something by hacking at the neck, yet with this one, we've got a very carefully constructed impression of a vampire bite.'' Almost the exact opposite of the one in the skip. Exactly, Redmond nodded. They're just two different, one concealing, one revealing. At that moment, Redmond's phone rang. She took it out and checked the caller display, which announced, Coleridge, mobile. She took the call. Hello, sir? She met Beck's eyes, saw the question there, and nodded. She turned away and walked a few paces. Yes, that's right. So, so you're here now? Of course, right away. She hung up and turned to Beck. Coleridge is outside. He wants to see us. Coleridge, said Al Habab. Right, well, we'd better get back to work. Good luck, you two. He turned and announced the news to the others. All right, everyone. Look busy. The brass has arrived. Redmond and Beck left Al-Habab and went outside to where Detective Chief Superintendent Coleridge, her boss and her late father's partner, stood at the bottom of the steps talking to a man she'd never seen before. Claire always felt uncomfortable in Coleridge's presence, regardless of how their height was now approximately the same. She always felt as if she were viewing him from the height she had been on the night Coleridge and his men had taken her father away." On seeing them exit the church, Coleridge broke off his conversation and turned their way, his white hair glowing in the bright morning sun. "'Redmond, Beck, good morning to you both. This is DCI Valentine from Falconbridge CID.' "'Falconbridge?' thought Redmond. She'd heard of the place, but had never met an officer stationed there. What was he doing here? This wasn't his jurisdiction. He was tall, maybe 6 2 She guessed he was in his early forties. He smiled at her, the kind of easy smile that came from an unassailable level of self-confidence. She distrusted him immediately. He held out his hand to her and said, Pleased to meet you, Inspector. I understand you've been having a rather busy morning. Redmond took his hand and shook it. His grip was warm, friendly. His skin, soft. She wondered if he used a moisturiser. Yes, sir two bodies in nearly as many hours." As Valentine and Beck shook hands, Coleridge said, "'And with some unusual similarities, isn't that right?' Redmond felt the all-knowing, all-seeing Coleridge towering over her, her child self reaching for her mother, and her adult self failing to find her. "'Yes, sir, possibly.' "'Don't hedge your bets, Redmond,' said Coleridge, looking up at the church. "'Bob Jeffreys called me twenty minutes ago with the news that the Camden body had been bled dry, and then we've got this one with twin puncture wounds to the neck, also bled to death, I presume?' "'Yes, sir, that appears to be the case.' "'What are the chances of that, eh? Seems like more than just coincidence, don't you think?' "'I, I couldn't say, sir, but yes, the chances of two bodies turning up like this are slim.' "'One in a million,' said Coleridge.' Probably less. Sir, I wasn't aware that Jeffries had formally confirmed the Camden body was drained of blood, said Redmond. When we were there earlier, we were just speculating about it. Well, it seems your speculations were correct, Inspector. Our district surgeons know to contact me immediately whenever this particular cause of death becomes apparent, because it has precedent in a serial killer case that Valentine here and his team down at Falconbridge have been working on for some time. "'Really?' said Redmond, surprised. "'I wasn't aware of any killer whose methods matched." "'That's because it's classified, Redmond,' Coleridge cut in. "'A need-to-know basis only, and you don't need to know. "'We have to keep this sort of thing well away from the media. "'If they ever got wind of a serial killer in London, "'they'd have a bloody field day.' "'I see,' said Redmond. "'But what about the victims of this serial killer? "'Surely the families were talking to the media?' "'So far, we've been lucky with our victims. "'They've been mostly vagrants and illegal immigrants. "'Killer's been choosing and disposing of them carefully. "'But now, with these bodies this morning, "'it looks like he's branching out. "'Maybe he's decided he's hidden long enough "'and fancies a bit of infamy.' "'Well, if it's media attention he wants, "'looks like he's going to get it,' said Beck, "'nodding down the street to where the first TV "'outside broadcast van was just arriving. "'Yes,' said Coleridge, "'Inevitable, unfortunately. Anyway, Redmond, I want you to pass on everything you've gleaned this morning to Valentine here. He and his team will be taking over both this morning's cases with immediate effect.' Redmond was stunned. "'Taking over both, sir? But we don't know that we're dealing with a single perpetrator.' "'You may not, Inspector,' said Coleridge. "'But I see sufficient evidence to suspect that we are.' Redmond wanted to point out that Coleridge hadn't even been inside the church yet, but she held her tongue. Valentine spoke then. Uh, "'DCS Coleridge is right, Inspector. "'We've been investigating this guy for, well, as he said, a long time. "'But these bodies of yours do bear hallmarks that we've seen before. "'Not just the method of killing, but other things too.' I'm not at liberty to say what they are, but I can say that at Falconbridge there's an incident room notice board covered with this guy's handiwork, and what we see on that board every day, we're seeing here too. I... I had no idea. But Redmond looked back to the church, remembering how different the murders were, and unable to marry what Coleridge and Valentine was saying with what she had seen. She said to Coleridge, Sir, respectfully, I don't think these murders were committed by the same perpetrator. I see. Well, that's something you can fill DCI Valentine in on, isn't it? Uh, But sir… Are you questioning my orders, Inspector? No, sir. It's just… I have strong feelings about these murders. Well, that's good to know. I always respect an officer's instincts, and I look forward to reading about yours in your report. Leave nothing out, Redmond, including your strong feelings. But now you can share them and everything else that you've seen and done this morning with Valentine here, Okay? Redmond could feel heat blooming in her cheeks as she replied, Yes, sir. Good. I'll expect your report on my desk by this evening. Coleridge turned to Beck. Beck, you stay here. Valentine's DS won't be here for a while, so I need you to interview the chap who found the body. Yes, sir, said Beck. Where is he? "'I'll take you to Butler. "'He's managing the scene till Falconbridge take over.' "'Right you are, sir,' Coleridge nodded. "'Right, now, I'm going to suit up and go into the church and see this body for myself. "'Valentine, I'll see you in there shortly. "'Beck, come with me.' "'They went, leaving Redmond and Valentine looking after them in an uncomfortable silence. "'Valentine broke it. "'In a conciliatory tone, he said, "'Sorry, Inspector.' "'Redmond was annoyed, but not with Valentine.' No need to apologise, sir. We're all just doing our jobs. Catching the killers is what matters. I'll help you in any way I can, of course. Thank you. A lot of coppers might have been a dick about having two fresh cases taken off them in one day, but you're clearly not like that. Not a dick. Thank you, sir. Uh, Was there anything else? (laughs) Only for you to fill me in on everything you and your partner did at both scenes and any steps you may have taken consequently. Claire gave him a brief, matter-of-fact outline of their actions that morning. Her assessment was professional and objective. She concluded by saying she was in no doubt that they were dealing with two separate killers. "'Okay, Inspector,' said Valentine. "'You've told me the facts, but now I'd like to hear what your gut tells you. I'm keen to hear about those strong feelings you mentioned.' He took out a roll of mints and offered her one. Redmond felt strangely disarmed by the gesture she smiled and took one of the proffered sweets. As she did so, she noticed a ring on the third finger of his hand. Married? No, it was his right hand. She wondered if he had a thing for jewellery, and her eyes flashed to his earlobes for signs of piercings. None. Good. She didn't like men who wore jewellery. The thought surprised her. Was she checking him out? As if in unconscious answer to the question, her eyes flashed to his left hand. No ring. Inspector, said Valentine. Sorry, sir, I was just trying to get my thoughts in order. She popped her mint into her mouth. Sergeant Beck and I have only talked briefly about the possibility that we may be dealing with more than one killer, and I personally wonder if we are dealing with more than one, that they may be working together. Valentine nodded. Okay, good. Any ideas to what end? Perhaps as part of a cult? Black magic? Satanism? That kind of thing? A cult? Valentine mused. Interesting. Have you seen any other evidence to support that idea? Daubing or writing? Any desecration of the church? Uh, no, sir. No, it's only conjecture. Anything else? Uh, no, sir. Really? He smiled. You sure you don't think this might be the work of an actual vampire? Redmond was taken aback by the remark. "'You are joking, sir?' (laughs) "'Of course,' Valentine chuckled. "'But it's certainly what this killer wants us to believe, isn't it?' "'Relieved,' Redmond managed to smile. "'Yes. Yes, absolutely. "'Well, thank you for your help, Inspector.' "'He took out his wallet and drew out his card. "'He offered it to her, and Redmond's eye was again drawn to his ring. "'If anything else should come to mind, give me a call.' "'You've got my office and mobile on the card, "'and if you and your sergeant can get those reports done by the end of the day, "'I'd be grateful.' "'Again,' he twitched the card between his fingers. "'My email's on the card.' "'She took the card. "'It was smooth, expensive, "'and announced him as Detective Chief Inspector Guy Valentine. "'Of course, sir.' "'She gave him a thin smile. "'It's not like I've got anything else to do today.' "'Valentine recognised the barb.' but said nothing. He smiled. Thanks, I appreciate it. Right then. I'd better get the old bunny suit on and have a look at the scene to myself, eh? It was good to meet you, Inspector. With that he turned and headed for the changing area. Redmond watched him go. She'd thrown in the black magic angle to deflect his question about her feelings on the case, and thankfully he seemed to have accepted it. She cursed herself for a fool for ever having let slip that her interest in these murders might be more than just professional, because it was more than just professional. Every instinct she had told her that the bodies she'd seen that morning were victims of the kinds of creatures she'd read about in her father's notebooks, vampires, Despite what Coleridge and the doctors had said about her father's sanity, she could never doubt what she had seen with her own eyes in those boxes of his. These monsters existed. Her father had fought them, and that meant Coleridge had fought them too. They had both been in the Occult Crimes Unit. It wasn't a figment of a madman's fevered imaginings, but a very real, very secret department within the police force— And now, here was Coleridge with this man, Valentine. Valentine, who's been working on a serial killer case for years, one so highly classified that not even the CID outside of Falconbridge knew about it. Crimes where the killer is exsanguinating his victims and which bear resemblance to not one, but both of the cases this morning. She felt slightly giddy, her heart beating fast, as thoughts that had been gathering like dark clouds in her mind all morning now began to merge. At this point, a shout broke in upon her thoughts. Hey, Redmond! Claire turned. Among the faces of civilians standing along the yellow tape marking the boundary of the police cordon, she saw a man waving a hand to catch her attention. Her skin crawled on recognising Ronnie Bishop. Bishop called himself a journalist, omitting the vital descriptive adjective gutter. The man was a parasite. He'd worked for all the red tops over the years, but his fondness for the bottle and his editor's fondness for deadlines didn't mix. Bishop had never stayed at any desk long enough to mould the seat cushion to the shape of his backside. These days he worked as a freelancer, digging into any business that wasn't his and selling it, along with pictures whenever possible, to any rag that would take it. Two bodies in one morning, Claire, Bishop called. Sounds like you've got a maniac on your hands. Care to comment? Redmond had a comment for him, but swearing at hacks in front of civilians was never advisable. She turned and headed for the changing area. When Beck had finished interviewing the church caretaker, who had found the body that morning, he took out his phone and called Redmond. She had been on his mind through much of the interview he'd just done. He knew she'd be taking Coleridge's decision badly, especially after what she'd told him about the chief superintendent being her godfather and all that business about him and her old man in the past. He was half afraid that she might have gone after Coleridge and tried to pull some kind of goddaughter strings with him to try to get them back on the case. Not that she ever would, of course. Claire was cool, and she was way too smart to think that kind of crap would curry any favour with Coleridge. But she'd be angry all the same. It was clear to him that she thought that the murders this morning were exactly the kind of thing that her old man had once supposedly been assigned to and maybe she even half believed that a real vampire might be behind one or both of the murders. He had to talk to her, if only to let her blow off some steam and reduce the risks of her taking that anger, and wacko theory, to Coleridge. He listened as her phone rang at the other end of the line, but he got no reply until her recorded voice asked him to leave a message. "'Claire,' he said. "'Claire, it's Larry. Listen, call me when you get the chance, will you?' I know you're probably pissed off with Coleridge, but you got to remember, he wouldn't have handed those cases over to Falconbridge if both him and them didn't both reckon it was the same serial killer behind these vampire murders. And yeah, I know what you're probably thinking about your dad and that business he was all mixed up in back in the day, but don't let that push you into doing anything rash. At the end of the day, Claire, it's just business, and it's not our business anymore, you know? So... Look, just give me a call when you get this, okay? He was about to hang up, but then added, You're one of the best, Gov. The whole department knows it, and especially Coleridge. Okay? All right, see you later. He ended the call and sighed. Don't be doing anything stupid, girl, he said to the phone before slipping it back into his pocket. Coleridge might be your godfather, but between you and me, I don't think he gives a toss. A few hours later, Ronnie Bishop sat in a McDonald's around the corner from St Joseph's Church eating an Egg McMuffin and listening to his dictaphone recording of Coleridge's initial press statement. Coleridge had only given the basic facts – two bodies, suspected homicides, no reason to assume a connection, anyone with information, contact the police, etc. Ronnie and other journalists had called for answers to more specific questions, but Coleridge wouldn't add anything to his prepared statement. It was thin gruel for Ronnie. All reporters wanted an angle, a bit of salt and pepper to enliven the bare details, but as a freelancer whose ability to pay the rent depended on him getting his words into print, Ronnie absolutely had to have one. He tried to scrounge up some insight on the priest by asking around in the church's neighbouring shops. It was perhaps a sign of the times that none of the shopkeepers even knew the dead man's name. That, at least, was one angle. But Ronnie's questioning threw up little more, other than the late Father Byrne had always seemed like a nice guy, read The Guardian, and enjoyed a bag of cheese and onion crisps from time to time not exactly the stuff of a Pulitzer Prize-winning story, and certainly not enough to get his copy onto the desk of any editor in London. But Ronnie had an ace up his sleeve. It was the one thing that had made him employable to newspapers, even when his reputation was sullied by what he liked to refer to as his social life, but what everyone else referred to as his drinking problem. "'Wankers,' Ronnie muttered. "'He was fifty-nine. Though he looked older. Ghostly wisps of brown-grey hair, combed in the memory of a side parting, drifted on the breeze every time the restaurant door opened. He typed notes into his laptop, eyes down, looking through the bifocal lenses of glasses that rested on his rubicund nose and the soft bags under his eyes. Crumbs from his food tumbled onto the grey suit he wore, the same one he wore every day. He'd bought it for his brother's wedding in 2001. He washed the trousers occasionally, but the jacket hadn't been cleaned since the day he bought it seven years ago. Sometimes he'd spill something on it in the pub, but a little shaken vac always seemed to put the freshness back with a quick once-over from the car vacuum cleaner. He pushed the last of the Egg McMuffin into his mouth and wiped his fingers on a napkin. "'All of them. Right. Bunch of wankers. Loser, she calls me,' he muttered, thinking of the last editor that had fired him. "'Well, we'll see who's the bigger loser, shall we? Twatface. How much of you can have to lose to old Ronnie this time?' He looked around. The restaurant was busy, but no one was paying him any attention. He reached under the table and unfastened his belt and top-trouser button, then, shifting sideways in his seat, he slipped two fingers into a small pocket he'd sewn into the inside lining of his trousers on the back of the original pocket. From there he pulled a little black address book. This was the ace up Ronnie's sleeve, though of course its actual location was far more secure than anything so flimsy as a sleeve. Ronnie's little black book couldn't have had a more guaranteed tamper-free existence if it had been in Fort Knox. In it, he had the phone numbers, voicemail PIN numbers, and phone ID numbers of hundreds of celebrities, socialites, government and public officials, and high-ranking police officers. He knew every trick in the book for acquiring this information, and so far, touch wood, Hardly anyone in the general public knew that blagging, what would eventually become known as phone hacking, even existed. Ronnie opened the little book with reverent fingers. These days, most of his colleagues in the profession were using fancy gizmos on their mobile phones to organise their information. But Ronnie didn't trust the security of that technology. Now he traced his fingers down the tabbed pages of the book and opened it at the letter R. There, he scanned the names and numbers scrawled in his spider-like script till he found what he was looking for. Redmond. Clare. C.I.D. Then he took out his own phone, another relic from 2001, and dialled the number written beside Redmond's actual telephone number. After a moment, an automated voice told him he had one message. After announcing message one, the voice of Detective Sergeant Lawrence Beck spoke to him, saying, Claire, Claire, it's Larry, listen. And Ronnie did listen, typing up the message on the laptop as he went. Once he'd finished, he replayed the message again to check the details, then hung up. He couldn't believe his luck. Not only did he have a suspected serial killer connection, but they were even calling him the vampire. Or at least they were, as far as Ronnie's source was concerned. He grinned as he read through the notes again. "'Thank you very much, Inspector Redmond,' he said with a chuckle. "'Looks like you just got old Ronnie onto the front page of tonight's paper!' He finished his coffee, fastened his trousers and hurried off to the Lamb and Flag to write his story, and maybe he'd celebrate his scoop with a and t or two. And so, as Ronnie rushes off to write his headline-grabbing story, Guy Valentine and his team from Falconbridge take over the case of the vampire killings. Are these new victims just another couple of bodies in an ongoing, highly classified, serial killer investigation? Demo, for one, would certainly be surprised to learn that they were. Join me next time for Chapter 12 of Underwood and Flinch, Underground. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Arma by Farid Farjad from the album Anruza, Volume 4, courtesy of Taranay Records and our good friend Fawaz Al-Maloud. It's available on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Unlimited, Deezer, and so on and so on. And there's a link to the track at Spotify at underwoodandflinch.com. Thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you're enjoying Underwood and Flinch, do please share word of the podcast with your family and friends, both in the real world and in the online world of social media. If you could share a link to the podcast, I would be very grateful. And you can find me on social media at Twitter, at TheMikeBennett, and on Facebook at MikeBennettAuthor. Thank you. But from me for now, until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch, farewell.
0: plus.